0: Imagine yourself traveling. You've got to go a few hundred miles to visit your friends or family in another village or city. And as you pull into town, you notice that there's no cars on the road and no people on the streets. And everything's silent. You stop in to check on some stores, walk into the local McDonald's, you look around. Everything's quiet. You finally get to where you're going and you come to your family's house. And you're standing outside and you just have, you smell this horrible stench. Then you just hear some moans and whimpers coming from inside the house. Your heart is pounding and fear starts to overcome you as you walk, afraid of what you'll see inside the house. You enter and you look in the bedrooms and you see swollen, bloated corpses of your friends and family, their bodies covered in pox marks. You look in the children's bedroom, and it's the same thing. Then in the last room, two more relatives. They're there, but they're so weak and delirious that they can't even rise to get water or relieve themselves, let alone get the strength to bury the dead. Now, picture this in every home in your entire city. You stay and care for people in the home, but soon enough they die as well. You bury the dead and you head home to tell your city what happened. But you are unaware yourself that you will also be dead in three days' time. Hi, this is Caleb. And this is Andrew. Welcome to Iroquois History and Legends, episode seven. The Dawn of Doomsday. Ooh, creepy. Very creepy. So, Caleb, that story you just told, it kind of sounds like the pilot to a uh, Walking Dead or some kind of other B horror film, sure. doesn't it? Yeah. Um But it if you live here in America or Canada or South America, you're living you know, in a post apocalyptic world we Hollywood puts out these movies all the time that talks about some disease coming through and wiping everybody out, and only a few people are left. But it really happened. you know there were whole towns and villages and entire civilizations that got absolutely wiped off the map, and we don't even know they existed before this; they were just gone. Mm-hmm. How does something like that happen up until recently? uh the white settlers and the people that moved to America. They all saw this happening, but until recently, nobody really realized how bad it was and why it was so much worse for the Native American people than it was for even the, you know, the Europeans that happened hundreds of years earlier. Yeah, picture all of a sudden this disease shows up and within a few weeks, half your community is dead and more are ill and can't take care of themselves. And then it gets worse. Each new year, there's different waves. The disease may return or new diseases are coming and you don't know what is what. You have to go and relocate to another town because you don't have enough people to help run the one you're in. Your whole society begin, begins to break down because your your chiefs or your leaders or your clan mothers or your children are all dead. You don't have people to go out and hunt or fish they're too weak to plant the fields, you you don't know what's happening. So maybe we should go back in time a little bit and kind of see what what caused this? Where did it come from? Well, I guess there's one pivotal pivotal moment in world history where things kind of start the domino effect that scale out. And for that, Caleb, we need to go to Constantinople. You mean like Byzantium? Yes, like the Roman Empire. So The Eastern Roman Empire lived on long after Rome fell, and it lived until 1453. And then they were conquered by the Turks. Somebody finally figured out that cannons and mortars can blast through the Theodosian walls, and the Turks were finally able to come in and take over Constantinople. Now, you may ask, why is that important? Why is that important? Well, Constantinople sits on the border between Europe and Asia in Turkey. And it was the hub where all trade coming from India and China came through from Asia into Europe for yeah, the there markets. there was a, a small strip of water. Some say it was the, it's the most priceless piece of water in the world at the time. And what, what was that called? It was the Sea of Marmara or the Bosphorus between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And the only way through it was, was. directly through the city of Constantinople. Yeah, so Constantinople falls to the Turks and all of a sudden... The Europeans have no way to get their luxury goods, their spices, their silks, their other special things. And for us, we just go down to the supermarket and we get a bottle of pepper. But pepper, just the black corn pepper that we get, would bring an outrageous price. And then you add on top all these other different spices that we use to cook with, and these things were just absolute luxury items to have by the rich and elite. Mm-hmm. and so, Luxuries that everyone had gotten used to having. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's cut off. And the Turks are not letting anybody go through and trade. And so what are you going to do? How are you going to get to India and China? Well, what ends up happening is all the kings of the European nations, Spain in particular... Decided that they might commission somebody to find another way to India and to the Silk Road. Yep, so the Portuguese started getting an idea of maybe we can sail around Africa and use that way to get there. They didn't know if the Indian Ocean was landlocked or not, they had no idea. It's a common misconception that people thought that the world was flat. They did not think it was flat, but they just thought that they calculated the size of the earth and they said it's just not possible to sail from europe to india it's just too far you'd never make it now there is this guy you may have heard of him from i don't know first grade caleb 1492 columbus sailed the ocean blue Mm-hmm. heard of this guy pretty infamous in 1962 right uh no 1492 <laughs> is that what i said no okay good. i was just joking <laughs> very good <laughs> Anyway, so Columbus was an Italian guy that was commissioned by King Ferdinand and Isabella of United Spain. And so he set sail and he found India. Good for him. Problem solved. All the spices you can get from Hispaniola. And I don't know what how their silk market is there. Though. Yeah, Columbus thought he found India and Asia, but he was way off. Turns out they were right. There is a huge mass between sailing from Spain to India. If America wasn't there and it was just an ocean, you probably wouldn't be able to sail directly. (laughs) But fortunately for Columbus, he did find some land and was able to sail back. But he thought he found India. And that's why, as you know, people are called Indians in North America. But it took them a while. Columbus made four trips before he realized that he had even made it. And he did not, He died thinking he made it to India. <laughs> the most famous failure probably in human history. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until afterwards when they realized that they made a mistake. Hey, this is in India. Okay, how about we just call it the West Indies then? Mm-hmm. But other countries started getting on board. And so in 1497, there was this guy named John Cabot. And he sailed for England, and he went up and took a northerly route because they realized, hey, this is in America, but maybe... There's just this mass in the middle, and we can sail around it and take a northwest, it was called the Northwest Passage, and take a route and sail around and uh, get to India that way. Well, John Cabot ran into this thing called Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. And probably very shortly after finding Newfoundland, he started to find ice. (laughs) Yes, that was the other thing. He tried to find the Northwest Passage. It wasn't going. He sailed back, um, but other people started going out because he brought back reports and said, you know, there's a lot of really nice fish around here. And so Basque and Brayton fishermen started sailing because it's really not that far to sail uh, going up that direction. And so they started sailing over there and doing yearly fishing trips, loading up their ships with different types of uh, cod and different types of fish that are located off the Newfoundland shores. And it's the Basque that coined the term Iroquois. They met these native people there on the shore, and they started trading with them. And the Algonquin-speaking people they were trading with said, you know, watch out for these guys down the river here. These are the Iroquois. These are the man-eaters. These are the black snakes. Then France tries to get in the game, and they send a guy in 1534 named Jacques Cartier, So Cartier sails from getting permission from the king of France. And again, he's trying to find the Northwest Passage to get to Asia, to get to the wealthy markets. And the king says, well, if you're there and you happen to find out that there's gold and jewels in the land, you know, get some of those too. So it took him about 20 days. He sails across and he starts exploring the area around Newfoundland and the Gulf of the St. Lawrence. The St. Lawrence River kind of goes northeast, coming out of Canada, out into the Atlantic Ocean. And he's going out there and they're sailing around. There's lots of ice and they're coming out. And all of a sudden they see this bear, Caleb, swimming out to an island. And it was a bear they had never seen before. Can you guess what kind of bear it was? I'm going to guess a grizzly bear. No, it was white. Oh, they <laughs> saw a polar bear swimming in Newfoundland. They're like, what the heck is that? And so they did the nice humane thing and they harpooned it in the water And brought it on board and ate the whole thing. And they said it was absolutely delicious. And then they continued to sail on. And they found these uh, rocky islands. And they found these great birds there that they called penguins. Mm -hmm. But as you know, penguins don't live in the north, do they? They do kind of look like penguins. But these were the original penguin. Yes. The great auk is actually the word that they called them. I mean, they called them penguins. And then they transferred the name to the south um antarctic birds and called those penguins now but, how how come i haven't ever uh, seen a, a great auk well it's because they're so great that you know we decided to kill them all <laughs> yeah the great auk had a very small habitat they only bred on a few islands mm-hmm. you know very limited and when they came in they were they don't fly uh they, they're, they're they're tasty good-sized bird i think they were like 15 pounds 10 15 pound bird so you can get some meat off that Mm -hmm. and uh they basically put them all to to extinction in a very short amount of time it was a few hundred years i think the 1800s was the last that they saw but yeah within a few hundred years they were all gone but the population was pretty much decimated i mean you show up on a breeding site and (laughs) look at these fat birds here Oh, i haven't had meat in a while yeah they don't even want to leave their nests for some reason they're very easy to hunt so uh, Cartier actually says that they killed a 1,000 birds on this one island. Well, for your crew of hundreds of guys, makes for a tasty treat. So anyway, then they come into contact with some Aboriginal people up in the Newfoundland, uh, Nova Scotia area called the Micmacs. And they do some brief trading and things like that. And then he continues down. And he goes down to um, Gatsby Bay. And there he meets a party of the St. Lawrence Iroquoians. So this is where we finally got historical records of people making contact with Iroquois people. Mm -hmm. Now remember, these aren't Iroquois that are involved in the Five Nations. Correct. But they speak a similar language. Yeah, it's actually very close to Mohawk. So think of them as you go across Iroquois up to the Mohawk. These are the next peoples after that. So... Cartier does, and I always thought this was a myth, but he literally gets off the boat, plants a cross in the sand on the beach shore, not like a little cross, like a 30-foot cross, and writes on it that he claims this land and the king of France, uh, to the glory of God, long live the king, blah, 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 blah. You know, I always thought that that was just some... Legend, but they really did that thinking that that was all you needed to do to claim an entire continent. I remember in all my kids' shows, it was always stereotypical you step off the boat, I claim this land in the name of. <laughs> I, I always pictured planting a flag though, not a cross. Yeah, so they put up a cross because they're good Catholic French. And some of the Iroquoian people are a little upset by this. Now, we're not really sure because we don't have their side of it, but he says that they were angry. And Cartier is there, and he's trying to explain to them lifting his hands to heaven, and they have no idea what a cross is. And he's trying to explain to them some heavenly thing, and they're going back to their boat. And their chief and his two sons and some other relatives come out on a boat chasing them and waving his hand saying, Hey, you guys, what are you doing? (laughs) Upset at them. And so they say that he goes through this long oration, and they called him Chief Dananakona. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's what I'm going to call him Dananakona. And so they come up in their little boat, and Jacques, being a nice guy that he is, says, This guy, just bring him aboard. And so they, they go out and they grab his canoe and they pull it up to their ship and they force them all on board, you know, pretty much arresting and detaining them. And so Cartier says, look, we'd really like it if your sons would come back to France with us. And he's like, no, my kids aren't coming. And uh, he's like, well, we'd like you to come back. He's like, I'm not coming. None of us are going with you. And he said, well, we're going to take them back. And so it would be really good if you'd give us permission to let them go. And here, we've got some lovely trade goods. And so the chief reluctantly, seeing all the the things like that. And he says, all right, but when are you going to bring them back? And he says, we'll bring them back after 12 moons. Again, I thought the moons thing was just a, a Flemish thing, but uh no, it actually is, he says, 12 moons. And so the chief says, okay, you can take my kids back because Cartier wanted to go and have proof that he actually went anywhere. And the best way to do that is to bring back people with it. And he also thought that They could be trained in France and used as interpreters. So they trade these pots, pans, knives, axes, things like that. The chief goes. They do a little more exploring. And Cartier heads back to France. So Cartier gets back to France, shows off to the king the two guys that he got. The king's really impressed and says, this is great. I want you to go back. And so two months later, he's on his way back. Oh, that must have been (laughs) terrible. You're on a boat for 20 days going across the ocean with nothing to see. You get back and you get commissioned to go back again. The good thing is he was he was paid for it. So, yeah. so he goes back with um, the two sons of the chief and they get back and he sh- the two sons are able to show them, take them back to their village and they've learned a little bit of French so now that they're acting as interpreters, you know, obviously it's not great because it's only been about four months at the max they've had to do it. So they come back and um, they meet up with some different people. And they tell everyone that they've been treated really well. They tell them about France. And so Cartier goes to their, uh, a neighboring town called Stadacona. 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 And so he decided to say, stay there. And then he used another ship to go down to their hometown called, you want to give a stab at that, Caleb? Hacchelalaga? Hachelaga? Hachelaga? I think it's Hoshilaga.
1: Hoshilaga.
0: Anyway, <laughs> it's not important really because I can just tell you where they are. Um, the first one is modern day Quebec and the second one is modern day Montreal. Now, uh, the site on Montreal was far more impressive. Um, it was a pretty big village. And over a thousand people came to the river to greet them. It was a palisaded place. And he asked the chief uh, what the name of the area was. And they said, Canada. So Canada is actually a native word? Yes. And not only that, it's an Iroquoian word. Even in Mohawk, I believe it's Canada. Do you know what it means? Yes. It means settlement. Like a town or ah, a village. Kind of like our town here. Canadegua means the, the place, place where we live, live the or for, the our spot. city, the yes. chosen spot to live. Exactly. So, yes, the word Canada is Iroquoian. So, fact of the show, I think. And so it just meant a, a village. And so, literally, they called it the land of the villages, Canada. So Cartier decides that they're going to stick around this time. They're going to stick around for the winter. So they start building a small little encampment uh, a ways down. And strengthening, getting firewood, salting their meat, getting game and fish. And then their ships freeze because, hey, it's Canada in the winter. So their ships are frozen in place. They can't leave. They're in this little place. And they get to experience the joys of Canadian winter. And another fun thing called scurvy. Now, Caleb, do you know a thing or two about scurvy? I never personally experienced scurvy. But... For anybody that's ever seen any pirate movie, you always look and the pirates always are missing all their teeth. And a lot of people say, oh, it's because they drank so much rum and the sugar from the rum rotted their teeth. Uh, Maybe, but basically what happens is when people don't get enough vitamin c in their diet and what has vitamin c caleb well basically anything that's not salted meat (laughs) (laughs) all vegetables and fruits have some vitamin c uh so when you're home having your home cooking you naturally get enough to keep you from getting this disease but when you're on a ship for long periods of time uh sailors were very susceptible to it that's why you a lot of times you'll see the the sailors sucking on a, a lime rind the the lime itself would rot so they would just store the the lime peels basically because those could be dried out and the vitamins he would say them and they would just chew on those mm. uh, but people didn't understand back then what caused it uh, except for maybe the native americans you might be able to make the argument that they understood it maybe not how vitamins work but They understood that uh, eating certain things kept you from getting this disease. So they all got it. Uh, Cartier writes that out of 110 of them, so there's 110 guys there, not 10 of them were able to get up and even help the others. They said that they were pitiful. Fortunately, the nice people, the locals, told them, hey, we've got something for you. He met a guy, that uh, a local guy, that had the same thing, that they were afflicted with, the scurvy. And he came back and saw him a week later. He was all better. He said, hey, what did you do? And they said, oh, we just boil some tree sap. And he said, can you show me what tree this is? And they said, yeah. Uh, so they took him. It was a tree called an anidida. Or possibly it was like a, a, white, a white cedar. It's an evergreen tree. And then it has little pine cone berries on it. And so you would take that and boil it with the, the sap of it. And it has enough vitamin C in it that it would take care of the scurvy. Mm-hmm. And so they started to get better. Now, a lot of them died before they got to the place. But he says that it saved a lot of them. So, yay, they're saved. Springtime rolls around. Jacques's getting ready to head back. But he tells the chief, he says, you know, um, it would be great if you could come back personally and tell my king of France that... Uh, You know, there's lots of diamonds and gold around here. And it would be great if you could come back and explain these things. He must have thought that this chief was a complete idiot. (laughs) Can you just picture being asked this? Hey, I come from this super powerful country that um, has far superior technology to you. uh, And could you come over and just tell my king, basically, that your country is ripe for the taking if he can just give me more men and money? He probably won't believe me if I say it. But if you come and tell him, then he'll know that it's legit. So by hook or by crook, he ends up taking uh, the chief. He also takes a total of 10 people back. And he tells them same thing he said about his sons. You come with me, I'll bring you back in 12 moons. So I don't know how willing the chief was to go. In Jacques telling, he says that he came willingly. Yeah, I've read in other books that said he pretty much kidnapped him. It's probably a gray area in between there. Um, but he brings him back. But the problem is, unlike last time when he kept his promise of bringing him back within 12 moons, it was more like uh, five years. Things happen. France gets involved in a war. Uh, it's not on the king's mind. Um, The chief is well taken care of. He lives on the king's pension. He has comfortable living. It's not like he's sitting in some jail cell and only brought out the time being. But he is there. And uh, he ends up dying. In fact, they all end up dying. Only one person survives a girl. And we don't know the fate of her. But um, nine out of ten of them die within those five years from diseases they contract. So the five years are up and Jacques comes back to Canada. And they're all dead. What do you think he told them? Uh the the other natives? Yeah, the natives when he gets back and they ask where their chief is. Well, I, I can I can kind of picture the whole Kim Jong-un North Korea treatment, maybe. Uh they liked it so much back in our country that they wanted to stay. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> We didn't rehearse this either. I I can just picture that. That's exactly what he said. He said that they were there and they liked their country so much and they took wives and started families of their own (laughs) and they didn't want to come back. So, but they said they're very happy and they send their regards. Yeah. Straight, bold-faced lie. Oh, it's so bad. Anyway, Jacques um, starts to realize that the natives are not stupid. They have worn out their welcome. They're not bringing them fish or food anymore. Uh, He's come over with another guy, and they're supposed to start a colony. And Jacques is starting to read the writing on the wall saying, you know, this isn't really good. And then, well, wouldn't you know it, Jacques' men find gold and diamonds. Tons of them. Absolute tons. It's something that a lot of people don't realize is just how chock-full... Uh, Northeastern America and southeastern Canada are of gold and diamonds. It was amazing. I mean, and Caleb, they didn't even need to cut them. They just saw these jewels sticking embedded in the rocks. It was like something you see out of a Ducktales film. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. There's just one problem. <laughs> have you ever heard the phrase "as false as a Canadian diamond"? I have not. Well. This is where that phrase comes from. <laughs> what Jacques and his men had discovered was a, th- a nice mineral called quartz. You know, the stuff that people, you know, put in their gardens to make them look nice. <laughs> yes. And so you look at you can Google pictures of it, and it looks like a jewel. But you smash it with a rock, and it's going to fall apart. Uh, it's not a diamond. And they also found gold, but have you ever heard of fool's gold? it was. It was iron pyrite. It was iron pyrite. And so Jacques and his guys start loading his ship up with this stuff. You know, I wonder if the term fool's gold comes specifically from him. I don't know. I'd have to check on that. But anyway, so they load this boat up with all this stuff. And so they're supposed to be there starting a colony. There's another guy there that Jacques is actually subordinate to this time. And uh, Cartier's like... I've got a ship full of golden diamonds. I'm headed back to Canada. Oh, boy, or back to France. The king is going to be so pleased with me. <laughs> Screw uh, starting a colony in this frozen wasteland. I'm going to go live like a king back in France. So Jacques literally sneaks away in the dead of the night, doesn't tell the other guy that he's leaving, and sails back to France. Uh, the colony ends up not working out, and they end up packing up and leaving, too. But Jacques gets back and so unloads his stuff and uh, the geologists there in France start checking the stuff and they're like, hey, um, yeah, this isn't gold. This isn't diamonds. Jacques never went back to Canada. He never went back, but he he left something behind, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. So what did they leave behind, Caleb? Well, let's stop and look at this from another angle real quick so you know this this is happening in the 1530s right yes so all of this contact between the Native Americans and the French and Spanish and and Dutch other people that very shortly are all going to be coming and meeting on their shores It's the 1530s, and basically the only contact they've really had with these people is right on the shore. There hasn't really been any expeditions inland. They don't really know anything about the country other than the shoreline right now. So it's still going to be quite a while before we start getting large groups of people coming and moving to the new world. So we have these two different theories and how big the population was in the Americas. Uh, we have a little bit better of an idea in South America because we have more documentation on the Spanish and, and a lot of them came all at once. But in North America, we really don't know exactly how many people live there. Well, Jacques Cartier wrote in his diary journal that he thought that in the St. Lawrence Valley there were 100,000 Iroquoian people. Mm-hmm. And modern people thought... He was just exaggerating or he didn't understand the demographics. There's no way there were that many people there because when Champlain comes in 50, 60 years, he says the area is deserted. So there's obviously there weren't that many people there. Yep. and so everybody just assumed maybe he was being a pansy and trying to hype up the numbers as an excuse why he wasn't able to get his settlements going. Maybe he said, there's so many of these people there, you know, I was kind of hamstrung. But as you know history has evolved and we've we've learned so much more now a lot of historians now are starting to suspect that there was actually a much bigger population in the northeast america and uh yeah tens of millions they think there could be upwards of a 100 million people in the americas so it's the 1530s and we've just had some first contacts uh in the North Americas. Yep. Cartier also writes, when we talked about the guys doing the scurvy, the Native Americans also had about 50 people die of uh, unknown diseases back in their camp that winter. So it had already started right there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, each time you need a new fishing boat or a new guy looking to trade some beaver pelts for some knives, there's the chance that some germs are going to be passed. Yep. I want to I bring up the point, though, on why people aren't really sure, and why it's so hard to tell how many people there were here. For for example, we have all these diseases that everybody knows that measles and smallpox and things like that just had a devastating effect on Native Americans because we can see the devastating effect that they have in Europe. Uh, for example, some of these diseases were known to kill a quarter to half the population in some of the biggest epidem- uh, epidemics. So, therefore, we could kind of guess, okay, if there were... Um, 100,000 people living here, uh, we could say that now there's only 50,000 people here. So, so that kind of skews the numbers. But here's the thing that, that we didn't understand at the time, uh, the way that the genetic makeup is for the Native Americans. If, if you think of Europe and uh, Asia, basically for thousands of years you've had all sorts of people. The genetic makeup is a big soup Lots of people have been mixing for thousands of years, but in uh, in Native in the Americas, they were much more like a purebred. They had a, a much smaller amount of gen- genetic makeup, and also they had no experience in their genes of dealing with any of these diseases. for For thousands of years, people in Europe had been dealing with smallpox, so they, over generations, have been building up. Um, Not not necessarily immunities, but immune systems that can at least give you a chance at fighting it. So now picture, if this is killing a quarter of the people in Europe, and we just did our math saying, okay, if it kills a quarter of the people, now we know that there's this many people. But now that we know the things that we do, there are some people that believe that these diseases could have killed up to 90% of the population. Just think about that for a minute. Think of 90% of your population dying from Yeah, you look at the news, and they're in the business of making people freak out all the time with, you know, the next disease here or there. Ebola was a classic example a while back. You know, in this part of Africa, 50% of the people that got it died in Western Africa. And they thought, oh, no, what if it goes airborne? It could kill half the world's population. Oh, no, oh, no. Well, there were different environmental things. But, yeah, uh, that's one thing that people are always terrified of is some kind of massive epidemic. You know, the, the flu virus in the end of the First World War went through and killed hundreds of millions of people around the world in just a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I want to point out a few other things. Um, you remember in, in some of our past episodes... How did, how did the natives, li- especially the Iroquois, how did they live? They lived in longhouses. You have 100 people living in one house together, no room divided. You're all living in there, breathing the same air. Also, uh, quarantine. The Europeans understood when you had somebody sick, you section them off from everybody else. They do whole towns or yes. ships. And you would have certain people take care of them. Uh, in Europe, a lot of times the, the priesthood, especially back when they were dealing with the, the Black Death and things like that in the 1300s, the priests kind of worked as the doctors at the same time, which was one reason why it, it wiped out so much of the priesthood. But anyway, in their culture, when somebody's sick, the whole the whole longhouse helps care for them. They're nice people. They're looking out for one another. Yeah. They're a family. They feed you and, and bathe you and, and bring you water and things like this. So all these people are... Uh, are breathing in this air and they don't understand the quarantine people. So then all of a sudden, this is why it's so much more likely that there were a lot more people here than we think, because just picture if how big is your family? What if your family is only seven people? You're all dead. If if there's 10 of you, if you in my family, there's seven of us siblings and then our parents, so that's nine of us. One, we, one lives maybe, or, or yeah. we all die. Yeah. Uh, and just the strain that that puts on your your civilization. How do you learn to deal with that? And also, what happens if the one person that lives... We, we think of it, okay, you got you got four 25-year-old women and, and uh, six 25-year-old men. Okay, no, let's look at this realistically and say, okay, you got two old people and you got three middle-aged and then you got some kids. What happens when the kid is the only one that lives? With, with, and then all of a sudden you don't have people to educate the, young, the younger ones. This created just... Nobody could... I, I can't even fathom it if this ever happened. Yeah, your police department is gone. Your fire department is gone. Your, so they had hunters. People go out hunt, hunt and fish. Well, there's, there's three men left. If they can't go out and do that by themselves. What are you going to do? There's no women to sow the fields. It absolutely destroys your entire culture. Um, now, Squanto, Caleb, was not an Iroquois. He was an Algonquian speaking, but um, you know a bit about him, right? Yeah, Squanto, that that's a common name. They believe his name was actually Tosquantum, but there's actually even some debate in that. They think that that might have been a given name later in his life as well. But Squanto was kidnapped by uh, the British and taken back to Europe Uh What ended up happening is he ended up becoming a Christian and the priests, from what I read... They rescued him. They rescued him. Mm -hmm. He was basically being kept as a... He was going to be sold into slavery. Well, for for a while he was kept as a showpiece, basically, by some of the royalty and and nobles there. So they rescued him, brought him into the church, and then they eventually found a way to get him back home. Yeah. So how how long was he in Europe? I think it was a few Uh, years. Yeah, it was... It was about 20 years between when he was going. He left late 1500s, maybe around 1600, and came back just before the Pilgrims on the Mayflower arrived, just before that. So if you ever hear the story of the Pilgrims, that they actually run into... You know, they tell you the story of this in fourth grade on how Squanto helped the Pilgrims, but what they don't tell you is that he was kidnapped by the British, taken back. And when he came back 20 years later, what's the first thing you would do? You would try to track down your family. So he goes home to his home village and he gets there totally abandoned everybody's gone they're all dead a few refugees have scattered to different places his whole community in and around new england has been wiped out so even though he wasn't an iroquois or even iroquoian Basically, the diseases didn't differentiate. No. Nope. It affected all of them the same. So, we have a little more documentation on some of these uh, Algonquian people because they lived a lot more of them on the coast. So, if we apply that to this. Yeah, who knows how many people were living in Iroquois at the time. But this kind of sets up where we're going in our next episode. F- listen to this and think about it for the week. What happens if all of a sudden your parents are gone, and your siblings are gone, and your extended family is gone, and you think, okay, that's okay, I have my clan family, uh, I'm in the Seneca, I can go to the Cayuga, but this has happened to every single nation in the in your world. Everything that you know, yeah, and it's spreading, and you don't. There's no way to stop it. You don't understand what's going on. And when, when the pilgrims land, Squanto leads them to his former home site and says, here, you guys, plant here. This will be a great place. Because it was his town. And they said they thought that it was God's providence because the land's already clear. Look at this. Farms would go great here. Well, the reason farms would grow great here is because there were farms here not too long ago. The area was already cleared. If you look at a map, Caleb, of western New York, almost every town has an Iroquois village where a current town sits because the settlers came here and it was already cleared. People had been cleared out because of war and disease. So next week, we're going to be discussing the aftermath and how their civilization survived from the 1500s up until the 1600s. And, uh, basically what they came up with we're going to talk about some things that you're going to realize why a lot of the settlers were disgusted by it and we're also going to give you the side of the the point of view that may make you think hey i can see why maybe they did this you know i can see why maybe they had to kidnap women and kidnap children and so we're going to invite you guys to come back next week or the week after we'll try to get this out within the next couple weeks and uh we'll go from there. And discuss the morning wars. Morning as in sadness, if you didn't get where we're going. See you next week, guys. Thanks. Thanks so much to everyone who's joined on and liked us on Facebook. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. Also, you want to check out, we have a new website called longhousepodcast.com. There we'll be posting pictures, obviously the episodes and different maps. You can also email us if you have any questions at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're so inclined, we would love it if you could go onto iTunes, if you use iTunes, and leave us a review. Hopefully we've deserved a positive one, but nonetheless, we'd like one. So thank you so much, folks, and until next time.